0: Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 51. Second sermon in a series, hurdles to faithfulness, things that get in the way, uh, impediments to persevering. Pastor Brian last week did a uh, kind of an overview message and I have the first assignment. The assignment is the hurdle of personal failure. I've got to tell you, that's way too whitewashed for me in light of the text that we're reading this morning. I used the expression self-inflicted wounds. Anyone have any of those? <laughs> oh, I did that to myself. And that's even not strong enough, honestly, in light of the subject matter that we'll deal with this morning. It's the hurdle of sin, friends. The stark reality of evil not evil out there, but evil in here. Now, I don't know if you pay attention, but um, from time to time, people of note and celebrity do wrong things. <laughs> Politicians, entertainers, people who are in the news. Have you ever heard a public apology that makes you cringe? An apology that really isn't an apology? I have. Here are some of the language. I I thought if I picked somebody, I'd offend somebody. So I thought I'd leave that alone and just talk about the concepts. Some of the most common apologies that aren't real apologies begin with words like these. Number one, I'm sorry if. Have you heard that? I'm sorry if I did anything wrong. I'm sorry if you were offended. An apology, it's really not an apology. It's a conditional apology. It falls short of a full apology. It suggests that something might have happened. Another example, I'm sorry that you... (laughs) That's a blame-shifting apology. It's no apology at all. It actually flips the script and puts the burden on the other person as the problem. I'm sorry you felt hurt. I'm sorry you think I did something wrong. I'm sorry that you feel bad. Another cringing apology begins with, I'm sorry, but. Excuse-making apology. I'm sorry, but most other people wouldn't have overreacted like you did. (laughs) I'm sorry, but other people thought it was funny, and so on and so on. One that uses a little different language is this one. I was just... You've heard that. It's a justifying apology. It argues that the hurtful behavior is okay because it was harmless or the ends justified the means. It was for a good cause. I was just kidding. I was only trying to help. When my wife does not like, I was just trying to calm you down. (laughs) I was just playing devil's advocate or as my kids say to one another after a particularly injurious word, I was just kidding. There's a bullying apology. A last example. Fine, I'm sorry. Okay. It's a bullying apology. Whether it comes in words, sorry, but it doesn't feel like an apology, and it actually takes the form a little bit of a passive-aggressive threat. Okay, enough already. I said I'm sorry. Give me a break. I'm sorry. All right. Those are inappropriate themes of confession and contrition a true apology by contrast is more freely offered without conditions it doesn't minimize what was done it conveys that a person apologizing understands and cares about the other person not themselves it has an element of remorse it starts with listening psalm 51 What's our need this morning? Let me, let me just give you where we're going before we look at the text. Sometimes I come to the pulpit and I'm like, I know how this is going. I know exactly how it's going to go. And then there's this morning. <laughs> Thirteen pages of notes and a full heart. And so much weight from God's Word. And so much I've learned and been reminded of this week in my study we need to understand the only path to true forgiveness of sins is a broken and contrite heart there are many ways to look at this psalm as i've read not into my own study read friends on the shelf uh, listen to other sermons the heart of confession steps of confession the process of confession maybe just as simply as possible what do you do with your sin However, people want to organize the information here. It's about sin and confession. What J. Adams would call the ABCs of confession. A, acknowledge your guilt. In biblical terms, sin is rebellion against God. It's not sickness. It's not bad luck. Sin is always first against God. Sin is always first against God. It may also be against others. We sometimes flip that script. Number two, Blame. Blame no one but yourself. Not your parents, not your spouse, not your kids, not your church, not politics, not society. And certainly don't blame God. And then confess your sin. Confess your sin. Confess it to God. Seeking God's forgiveness. I often in counseling make this gesture with people. All sin is vertical a lot of sin is horizontal we often miss this and only think about confession when it's brought to us we confess god's forgiveness or seek god's forgiveness confess and to others who might have been offended Psalm 51 is a story, and it's one that's very, very important in the Scripture, and it's a psalm that is tied to a very, very, very specific historical account. Not every psalm is tied to a specific historical account, but the psalmist actually includes for us a superscript, a title slide, if you will, that tells us the occasion of this account. And as we read it, we are going to look through a series of Questions, I'm going to kind of Q&A as an interviewer, the the psalmist David, and then allow him to answer for us. You might recognize some of these questions are questions you've asked as parents when you've been dealing with children who have had things come up in their lives. What happened? Hopefully the person might say, what have I done? Or you might say, what have you done? Who is to blame? What can be done about it? How do we move forward? Does it affect anyone else? This is where we'll go this morning. There are, uh, in the, in the uh, psalm, there are different Hebrew stanzas. The ESV Bible that we are common using has a little bit of space, more than normal, in a few of the places between verses. And those represent the different Hebrew stanzas. I will be using those as uh, dividers for my uh, outline. But first of all, we must read the title slide. Now, if you're looking there at your Bible, you see very, very bold print that says, "Created me a clean heart, O God. That is not inspired. An ESV translator put a note there, a, 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 um, what would you call it, a bullet point, kind of sum, summarizing the, the, uh, the psalm. Many times we skip over it, and we didn't even read it this morning, but do you see the all caps right below that? A lot of people don't know that the superscript of a psalm is actually inspired. That was part of the actual. So while you might dismiss the big bold heading and say, okay, that's cool, it's helpful, but it's not inspired, the superscript is inspired. It is here where we find the occasion for the psalm. Let's read it together. The title slide. To the choir master. A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Okay, if you would like to turn over to 2 Samuel 11 and 12, you can. You don't have to. I'm going to read most of it. But we'll go to 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And let's discover the story of David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the shepherd boy, the man after God's own heart. 2 Samuel 11, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. and, And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her And she came to him, and he had sex with her. Then she returned to her house. Wow. I don't know how much time goes on between Samuel records this as news copy. But there must be a small break here. She returns to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. National crisis. The king. Scandal. What will we do? So David sent word to Joab. Joab was, I think, a cousin of David or an in-law. He was a general. There's quite a bit about him in the Scripture. Send me Uriah the Hittite. Uriah had been out on battle with Joab. And Joab sent Uriah home from the front to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked Joab how, David asked how Joab was doing, how the people were doing, how the war is going. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So David basically paves the way for Uriah to go have an evening of intimacy with his wife, so that then when Uriah goes back to the front, Babies born, maybe they keep them out there late. We're not sure of timing here, and maybe we can get away with this. Falsify the date of the birth certificate. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord. He did not go down to his house. They told David, Uriah didn't go down to his house. David's plan's not working. David said, to Uriah, why did you came from a journey? Why didn't you go down to your house? Why don't you go see your wife? is a noble dude. He says, Look, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in tents. And my Lord, my, my comrades, the servants of my Lord are camping. In the open. My buddies are in battle and you want me to go have a night of pleasure? He felt dishonorable. Can you feel that? He, he would not go do that. Can you imagine David? He is trying. Have you ever been in this position? Trying to cover your sin? The big one. The one that exposes. The one that embarrasses. David said to Uriah, Well, stay another day, and then I'll send you back. So Uriah remained. Verse 13 David invited him, ate in his presence, and drank. So David got him drunk, hoping that his sensibilities would be dulled, that his moral code would be lessened, and that he would go and spend a night with his wife. That evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord. He did not go down to his house. David becomes desperate. I want you to feel this in the sense of contrast. Here we are sitting in church realizing, just having read a psalm, what should David do? (laughs) Acknowledge, blame, no one but himself, confess his sin. But we all know the pull of this. We've all experienced these temptations. Every one of us. David's desperation continues to build. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, verse 14, and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Put Uriah in the front of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Do you feel the irony here? David pens a letter. He trusts Uriah so much, he knows Uriah won't open the letter and makes Uriah the messenger of his own assassination. And it plays out the way David wanted it to. Skipping ahead to verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. David sees, David wants, David takes, and David seeks to cover his tracks, plans and succeeds to murder one of his, if you know this expression, one of David's mighty men. Uriah is listed in the book of Chronicles. It's the only other reference to Uriah in the uh, Old Testament He was one of these guys that would do anything for the king. My, 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 how blind sin makes us. Woo! We got away with it. (laughs) David said, oh, I was close. Can you imagine the cost to... Me, to my family, to the kingdom, to God's reputation, if my plans hadn't worked. And there is a verse in 2 Samuel 11 that we would all do so well to pay attention to. And it's stated so simply and succinctly that you would miss it and I think it was intended that way to just be this is so important. I'm just, it, you can't understand the importance of it. But the thing that David did displeased the Lord. <laughs> that is supposed to hit you and me like a ton of bricks. And when it doesn't, that's when we act like David. No one knows David got away with it. Chapter 12. The superscript said, this is the prayer of David when Nathan the prophet came to him. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said, a little parable. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he bought it, and it grew up with him and his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. It's a family pet. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. He was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against this man. Can you feel the irony? Can you feel the hypocrisy? Sin does this to us, friends. It makes us self-righteous, angry hypocrites. Hidden sin distorts and twists us in ways that we will overlook the biggest things in our own life and come unglued on others. And we're supposed to feel this, that David is involved in adultery, and murder, and hypocrisy, and lying, and cover-up. And he is frosty over a lamb dying. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Which is funny, because under the Old Testament law, David deserves to die and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, mic drop, you are the man. Is David in private counsel? Or is he alone? Did David do this privately? Was David's counsel? Well, I don't know. But you've been there when your sin is just laid open exposed thus says the Lord the God of Israel I anointed you king over Israel I delivered you out of the hand of Saul I gave you your master's house your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah and if this were too little I would have given you much more God says "Did I?" <laughs> this is the way God views this before we go to Psalm 51 look at God's commentary Why have you, one, despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because what you have, number two, despised me. We've despised the word of the Lord. We've despised the Lord. I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes, give them to your neighbor. He shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it in secret, but this thing I will do before all Israel and before the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. We're going to come back to that, but can I just comment for a moment? John Piper said this is outrageous my sister's a judge Marion County if a murderer shows up to court and she just says put your sin away is anybody very happy anybody want a new judge we have to deal with this but we have communion this morning so we're going to deal with that in a second and go to Psalm 51 okay but feel that how is this possible feel the tension what do you mean just one king earlier saul didn't listen to the lord didn't kill the king kept a little extra boom gone seems to me on the surface that david's sin is worse back to psalm 51 what do we do with our sin We just read what happened. Question number one. What have I done, says David? The first thought of confession in David's psalm, in David's heart, through the inspiration of God's Spirit for our instruction. Have mercy on me. Is that part of your prayer life? Are you so aware of your sin that you understand and thank God for His mercy? Or are you at a little bit of a presumptuous place, a little bit of an arrogant place, a little bit of a self-righteous place where you do not feel and appreciate the very fact that you have breath in your lungs is an act of mercy from the Lord? David just cries out, Have mercy on me, O God. According to you, now he appeals to God's covenant kindness. According to your steadfast love, he's like, "Oh, I be who you say you are. <laughs> Don't be somebody else today, God." Wasn't that beautiful? What Pastor Brian wrote about how God advocates for us when our sin is great. God doesn't shrink from us. His advocacy, his lawyerness, gets louder. It's beautiful. And yet we must recognize just our need for God's mercy. And David then uses um, some beautiful language here uh, to help us see the depth and need that we have. This language reminds me of a few other places. Psalm 34, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Isaiah 57 Uh, Says For thus says the Lord, who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is Holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and I also dwell with Him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. Friends, there is great humility here. There is great understanding of our place, and that He is God, and we are not Him, and He is holy, and we are not. It begins with parts of prayer. I don't hear many Christians pray these days. Have mercy on me. There are three words used for sin here, and there are three words used for dealing with the sin. And it's used here in verse 2, in this first stanza, and then again later. And he prays, according to your abundant mercy, Number one, blot out my transgression. Number two, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And number three, cleanse me from my sin. The idea of blot out, this is kind of a superficial word. The idea of wipe away. You know, if you get a stain on the carpet, you're trying to take it out. It's kind of a superficial thing. Blot out. Sin leaves a mark which God can see and which God can erase. Wash. Wash me. This is the idea of laundry. The infection, the stain of sin, gets right down into the fiber of our nature. It is woven into who we are. God alone has a detergent which can reach into our lives, break the stain up, and allow it to come out. Cleanse me from my sin. This idea of the word purify, to cleanse, used mostly in Leviticus of purifying people from some offense that excluded them from the congregation of God's people. Here, David's uncleanliness separates him from God. Sin is a great divider. It is the idea of ceremonial cleansing and purification. David's like, I'm dirty and I need cleaned every way possible. And I have no way of doing it myself. Not only three words for cleaning, but three words for sin so that we understand this. What is the need that we have so deep for mercy? Sin. Cleanse me from my sin. Whatever this specific offense is, the the literal meaning is to miss the mark. If I were an archer, I would miss every time so it would be a great illustration hit the mark of god's character iniquity the twisted or warped nature in fallen humanity where sin originates we are depraved we are fallen it is in us it just comes out we should not be surprised by it and transgressions this rebellion this willful irresponsible refusal to follow god's ways it's like David, you know, and they talk about in Hebrew how if you have something repeated twice, it has one emphasis, and if it's repeated a third time, it's like superlative. It's like the EST ending. It's like the highest. Three words for th- sin. Three words for our needed cleansing. David's saying, Lord, have mer-, Feel this, the, stand, the first stanza. Lord, have mercy on me. According to your steadfast love. Trace paraphrase because I am sinful to the core and only you can clean me. Where else can you go? More, better, uh, even greater confession. This next stanza, verses three through six: I know my transgressions; my sin is ever before me. David is going to say some words here about who's to blame, how deep he is to blame and how important it is that he acknowledges that this for, when judy read it i just got tears in my eyes i know my transgression and my sin is ever before me we might paraphrase that today by saying i can't get it off my mind the youtube video the tiktok keeps playing keeps playing i look in the mirror in the morning i see my sin i can't run i can't hide there's no relief my sin is ever before me the knowledge of it is there he goes on and says against you and you only have i sinned and done evil in your sight david says secondly not only can i not get it off my mind but my sin is against god and god primarily i've sinned against god Friends, God is the measure of sin, not society. Slavery was not not sinful before the Emancipation Proclamation and then become sinful because society decided to pass a law. Abortion was not okay after the Roe v. Wade case and then suddenly become uh, not okay after a more recent ruling by the Supreme Court, society doesn't get to decide in God's eyes what is right or wrong. Against you and you only have I sinned, O oh Lord. Now, you might think about that and think, I wonder how Bathsheba and Uriah felt about this statement. Because it seems like David sinned against some other people too. This also intensifies the idea that this didn't become sin only when someone got hurt. We sometimes justify that in our own minds and say, well, I'm not going to confess that this would actually bring more hurt if I brought it out. Friends, what we forget, and what I have tried to teach my kids from a young age, is that when they steal a piece of candy and get away with it, they didn't get away with it. It was known the moment it happened because the thing that they did dis. Pleased the Lord, who you cannot hide from. My sin is ever before me. It didn't become sin when someone got hurt. Sin is against God. Hear these words. God is the one most offended when we sin. The cost of atonement is the cost of our sin. And the wages of sin is death. And the only safe thing that can be done with guilt is to have it washed away. David goes on even just a little bit further at the end of verse 4 and says, listen to this, how, how deep David's confession is. He's like, remove all doubt. Everybody understand this. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your sight. And David says, God is not to blame for this. I am. And David acknowledges no matter what happens that God is just. And He would have been just if He had cast David from His presence, removed him from the kingship, and cast him into hell. God is blameless. God is justified. Friends, do we understand as deeply as we should in these moments that God would be just even if no one was saved? God did nothing wrong God's not capable of doing anything wrong. Just our breath alone is full of mercy. And David uses language that people misuse today. In verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. A lot of people say, you might read this and say, like some people say in their apology, well, that's just the way I am. I was born this way, or God made me this way. The language sounds similar. It's not at all what David is saying. David is saying, it is no surprise I'm this way. I am sinful to my core. I am depraved. The only New Testament quote from Psalm 51 falls here in this verse in Romans 3, 4 where where Paul is making the argument of the gospel and saying, hey, if God had rejected the Jews, God did nothing wrong. God is justified and blameless. We sin in spite of God showing us another way. And in fact, looking at the last verse of this stanza, David says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret place. We sin in spite of God showing us another way. God had been David's teacher. God had made him wise. David had done many wise things. And then, sin got the upper hand. And for David and for us, this makes it all the worst. We've been blessed with so much knowledge, so much wisdom, so much teaching. This is deep depravity that we would sin against such light. Second stanza, summary. It's our fault. The title of my sermon today is Six Letters. I did it. How often do you hear people say that today? It's three little easy words. i got to tell you, my heels dig in. I don't want to say those words. <laughs> my fault. I did it. Please forgive me. Stanza number two there from verses three through six. Look at the I, I, I. He, he is not wiggling. He is not evading. He is not blame shifting. All of that language we laughed at at the beginning of those bad apologies, David employs none of it. Third stanza, third question, what can we do about this? The most beautiful part of the psalm, I love it. Verses 7 through 12, the next stanza. Purge me with hyssop, I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from Your presence and take not Your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of Your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. What can be done about it? Having fallen on the mercy of the Lord, acknowledging our sin, having confessed and accepted blame for it, David now pleads for renewal. It's right. The main point is forgiven people are committed to being changed by God. And we will never come to terms with sin or with guilt until we have our own personal dealings with God about it. Friends, listen to me. Guilt is your friend to lead you to Christ. Don't hide and run from it. The presence of guilt in your life is an indicator that you need to run to Jesus few things here i i john piper had a wonderful sermon on this a couple of thoughts here that he drew out of this i thought were especially helpful in what he prayed about in verse 11 he prays cast me not from your presence What's he praying there? Like Brian said, is it possible to lose your salvation? No, 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 no. But have you ever been in this spot? And I think we all are based on what Brian taught last week, where there are times in our life where we're less sure about our salvation than others because of the way we've been behaving. And we're a little we we should be a little bit more vigilant about that because we are not walking in the light. The best passage about that somewhere in these 13 pages of notes there we go if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness we lie don't practice the truth if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us it's possible for us to claim something and for it not to be true cast me not away from your presence john piper said he's praying lord let it be true that I'm saved, that I'm really saved. Confirm my salvation to me. Bring me back. I'm not saying that you got saved again. I'm not saying you weren't saved to begin with. I think many of us will find out when we got saved when we get. I, I'm convinced that I'm going to find out when I got saved when I got to heaven because my, my early times were so bumpy and so full of insincere worship that I, I'm not trying to be trivial about those of you who have more definitive times, but does that make sense? The more important thing is that I believe in Jesus and I persevere. Amen? That is the important thing that I believe in Jesus and I keep going. And whether I know exactly, so at this moment and like is it any surprise to you that David after murder, adultery, lying, cover up, hiding all of it would be like, I wonder if I've even saved. <laughs> and I'm not trying to trivialize or plant doubts, but I thought that was good. He says, "Give me a new heart." He doesn't say, Give me a new heart. What does he say? Create in me a new heart. It's beautiful, and he borrows language from Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created out of nothing a new heart. It's what we need, friends, new hearts. Jesus said it to Nicodemus this way you must be born again he said it to the woman at the well one chapter later that you need springs of living water flowing up into you into salvation Ezekiel talked about replacing a heart of stone with a heart of flesh if anyone is in Christ he is a new creature the old has passed the new has come God remake my heart you do it I can't this is not rehab. <laughs> this isn't putting new doors on cabinets. This is tearing them all out. <laughs> a really important thought here. He prays for joy a few times. He prays for joy a few times. He prays that he would hear joy and that his joy would be restored. Says so that too quick running for... Well, I want to be over this. If you interpret it that way, maybe. I think the idea here is that how did he get here in the first place? Do you know what opens the door to sin, friends? The absence of joy with the Lord. At its very, very core, God wants us to love him and delight in him. That we would love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That he would be the apple of our eye. That he would be the pursuit of our life. As we read Wednesday night in the book of Colossians, that in all things he might have the preeminence. And when we allow God to come off the shelf and start to free float off the throne, it makes room for everything. And David is saying, Lord, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Could I get that love and joy from you? Not the substitutes that are idolatrous failures like sex, covetousness, murder, and lying. It's also astonishing here that nowhere in this psalm does he pray directly about those sins it started with sex it led to deceit it went to murder or did it why isn't David just crying out for sexual restraint why isn't he implementing software on his laptop just doing these protracted mechanical things the reason is that he knows that all of these sins are a symptom not the disease. And people give way to the symptoms because they don't have the fullness of joy and the gladness in Christ and the pursuit of love, of holiness, and of God Himself that they ought to have. Yes? Do you understand? We're not steadfast. We're not firm. We waver. We are enticed. And we give way because God doesn't have the place in our lives He ought to have. in our feelings and our thoughts. So David says that. I knew this would happen one minute to go. This is great. Give me a heart of praise, he prays. In verse 15, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. He's praying for inward renewal. This is so important. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. It's worth just a quick note just so that people would understand this. You might say, what does that mean? How could God take his Holy Spirit from me? If you were to read 1 Samuel 16, you would also understand that one of the ministries of the Spirit in the Old Testament was to come alongside of people who had significant acts of service to make sure they didn't mess up. I'm being quick here, okay? They were almost taking control, like Balaam's donkey. Silly example. Like the builders of the temple, filled with the Spirit. The Spirit came upon them. But in this context, like Saul, the Spirit was on him as the king. And when God rejected Saul as king, the Spirit left Saul and came on David. It was more of a supernatural filling. When David is saying here, don't take your Holy Spirit from me, there is an element here where David is saying, I I, I hope I can still remain the monarch. God, don't reject me. Don't put me on the shelf from service. I think it's important that that we understand that. How do we move forward? What do we do? Psalm uh, 13-17, I'll read it quickly, make a few comments, then I'll invite the men forward, we'll begin our communion time together. Thankfully I have both, so I wove this together to steal five minutes. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. How do we move forward? And sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. I hate that I'm rushing through this a little, and I hope you'll spend some time in your ABFs talking about this. How do we move forward? It's funny that David begins to talk about ministry. I believe that in every one of our lives because of our unique struggles with sin and the journey that God has taken us on we all speak a slightly different language. Some of you know better how to speak into the lives of one particular sin struggle than another because it's one you have walked in and are walking in or have walked in And God has taken you through this journey for years of your life. And you have walked in it. And David says, I will teach the rebels. I will be able to draw sinners. I understand a certain language. Friends, we are never on the shelf, regardless of sin in our lives, because that was just expected. We remove ourselves from fruitful ministry when we do not do the first three stanzas. When we get to this spot, there is an opportunity to do ministry. Not presumptively, because the sacrifices that God desires are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. David still remains his humility. He says, Lord, deliver me from blood guiltiness. What does that mean? Exodus twenty-one, twelve: whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death Leviticus twenty, ten: if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely surely be put to death I don't mean to say that we move so quickly to ministry in, in a superficial way that we do not carry around in our bodies the wounds and the burdens of sin that so easily entangles us yes And yet through vulnerable transparency and dependence on the Lord, it is right that we would use our stories to share the gospel with other people. That we would open our mouths and we would praise the Lord. That we would not shrink from Him for His loving kindness endures forever. He says, the Lord has put away your sin." And I said that was a little outrageous, almost flippant, almost glib. We'll deal with that and the rest of this passage as we look into uh, our communion time together. There's a tension in this, uh, as I was just sitting there collecting my thoughts, there's a tension here that helps us transition. And that tension is the depth of those three words that describe our sin Transgression, sin, iniquity. It's on us. It's in us. It's who we are. And then those three words that describe the cleansing, the blotting or the wiping, the laundering to the individual fabrics, And then the purifying, the the sanitizing. We all understand that, right? My hands are no more clean when I use hand sanitizer from a dirt standpoint than they were before. But there's something intrinsic that happens. The real hurdle is, how do we get from one to the other, right? And how in the world did Nathan say to David, after David said, I have sinned against the Lord, And Nathan said, the Lord has put away your sins. Well, this is the beautiful and most underrated sentence in the Bible. David had despised the word of the Lord. David had sinned against the Lord. Uriah's dead. I don't know what you make of David's relationship with Bathsheba, but they both probably bear some moral culpability. There's going to be a dead baby, the wages of sin. And David committed these sins. You don't just pass over murder, indiscretion, adultery, lying. Good judges don't do that. If someone objected to the gospel, I was sharing with them on this basis. I'd, in my own heart, I'd resonate with their skepticism. Again, to use John Piper's words, a little outrageous. Except for one thing. The Apostle Paul shares how these things come together and how God could be both righteous and the one who justifies murderers, adulterers, and liars. Romans chapter 3, speaking of moments like this, the Bible says that God put Christ forward as an atoning sacrifice by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in God's divine patience He passed over the former sins. That's exactly what God did here in 2 Samuel 11. He passed over David's sin. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that God might be both just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. How beautiful. That God would not be tainted and yet make a way. In other words, the little bit of outrage we might feel when, if God were going to just pass over David's sin... It would be good outrage if God were just lifting the rug and sweeping it under. If God just really liked David more than Saul. If God were playing favorites. God is not. God sees from the time of David down through the centuries to the death of His son Jesus. And Jesus would die in David's place. And it's good, too. You know, it's funny that we hear all these stories of failure along these heroes of the faith. And it's to remind us. Seth was not the Messiah. Noah, not the Messiah. Know any stories? Moses, Abraham, not the Messiah. God reinitiates this covenant with David. Maybe this is the guy who's going to be on the throne forever. No. David clearly not the Messiah. But Jesus, another one from Bethlehem, in David's line, would die in David's place. So that David's faith in God's mercy and God's future work unites David with Jesus, with Christ's righteousness, with the church of eternity, is counted to him as a righteousness, and God justly purifies David from his sin. The death of the Son of God is enough. And the glory of God that upholds it is enough. And friends, we should revel in that. um, All of our sins. If we could personify ourselves in David this morning. Jesus said, hey, you're a murderer if you hate your brother. You're an adulterer if you lust in your heart. We all sit at the throne of grace saying oh lord have mercy on me and he did in jesus praise the lord the instructions of the lord's supper are familiar to us the bible says i received from the lord what i delivered to you that the lord jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had broken taken it and broken it he said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me so when we take these elements we are to remember the lord jesus In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you eat and drink it, do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this is a reminder for us, especially precious this morning, in light of thinking about our own sin, that we could be so thankful for the mercy and grace of God, the covenant steadfast love on our behalf. A lot of heavy weight in this sermon. I recognize that. I love this opportunity to finish with communion because maybe you're here this morning and you're one of those people, even though you're in Christ, you would say, my sin is ever before me. I can't get it out of my head. The wounds I carry with me are too great. Friends, they are not. They are not. The cross is the great exchange. It is the great forgiveness. So I would ask you to revel in that this morning. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of His Son Jesus cleanses us from all sins. Martin Luther was known for a little bit of uh, good language in his preaching, the Reformer Martin Luther. And I love his words. They capture the spirit of this morning very well. So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know the one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also.